Bidjogcast, one giant leap for dinosaur kind, with John Field, Stuart Harper, Libby Jones, Ian Morrison, and Mark Perver. Bidjogcast, September 2012 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. This episode I'm presenting with Libby. Hello. And no one else. It's just us. So in the show this time, we're going from small to large as Dr. Simon Green talks about comets and then Dr. Joseph Mottram tells us all about star formation. And we'll find out what you can see in the September night sky from Ian Morrison and John Field. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Stuart Harper. In the news this month, Kepler finds two planets around two stars, sugars found in space, and a supernova against the odds. NASA's Kepler satellite last month continued to keep planet formation scientists busy by discovering a star system unlike any other found to date. Kepler-47 is a binary star system. One of the stars is roughly like our own sun, and its companion is a faint dwarf star. Binary systems like this are expected to make up roughly one-third of all the star systems in the galaxy, but what makes Kepler-47 unique is that it has two stable orbiting planets. It was only last year, 2011, that Kepler-16 was discovered, a binary system containing a single Jupiter-sized planet, and since then only five other planets have been found to orbit a binary star system. Also interesting to note about the planets Kepler-47b and 47c are their sizes and locations. The closest orbiting planet, Kepler-47b, is expected to be three times the size of the Earth, and its partner, Kepler-47c, is slightly larger at 4.5 times the size, with masses between 8 and 20 of the Earth's masses. This probably means they are similar to Uranus in dimensions, but Importantly, Kepler-47c lies comfortably within the habitable zone. The region around the host stars in which liquid water is expected to occur on the planet's surface. This gives the exciting possibility for Kepler-47c to have a water-bearing moon. Kepler currently has 77 planets within its catalogue of discoveries, but it may be systems like Kepler-47 that prove to be the most useful for testing our understanding of planet formation. This is because Kepler-47 offers the opportunity to study planetary systems which, in the past, many might have thought were impossible. In fact, not long ago, it was expected that single planet systems around binary stars would be very unlikely. Skepticism towards planetary binary star systems was not unreasonable. Questions of how planets can maintain stable orbits and not be flung into interstellar space or collide with other planets when gravitational forces acting upon them is constantly changing a problem still to be resolved. Also, the question of how planets formed at all in such a turbulent system is still open. However, at least for now, with the discovery of Kepler-47, it is safe to assume that these questions do have answers. A Type 1a supernova is the thermonuclear detonation of a white dwarf star that has exceeded the Chandrasekhar limit of 1.4 solar masses, resulting in a runaway fusion process in the core of the star. Type 1a supernovae are critical for many aspects of astronomy, as they are extremely bright and also release similar amounts of energy. This makes them ideal for calculating distances to remote star-forming galaxies that may be hundreds of millions of light-years away. However, when measuring such vast distances, just small errors in our understanding of what causes a Type 1a supernova can result in radically different interpretations for galaxy formation theories. The expected progenitor star system for a Type 1a supernova will involve a white dwarf orbiting a large red giant star, from which the white dwarf can siphon mass. However, the system may not always result in a supernova, since it is possible that the hydrogen gas being pulled from the surface of the red giant onto the white dwarf may undergo runaway nuclear fusion in the thin shell of enveloping accreted material. This sort of thermonuclear explosion is known as a nova, and is significantly less luminous than a supernova, but most importantly, it is thought that the nova explosion will remove more mass from the white dwarf than gain from its companion star. Therefore, each nova pushes the white dwarf safely away from the critical Chandrasankar limit, preventing it from going supernova. Unfortunately for white dwarfs, nova explosions may not save them from going supernova, as researchers using the 48-inch Samuel Ocean Telescope at the Paloma Observatory found last month. 
Using a method which allowed the telescope to observe a large portion of the sky in real time, they were able to detect Type 1a supernova PTF11KX and very rapidly take spectroscopic measurements to determine the structure of the explosion. They found that the supernova detonation was surrounded by an expanding gas shell that was too slow to be from a different, older supernova, but far too fast to be a stellar wind from the red giant companion star. They proposed that it could be the remnant of a smaller nova explosion, perhaps originating from the white dwarf which had just gone supernova. By calculating the velocity of the expanding supernova and the slower nova remnant, they estimated the expected time both would meet if both originated from the same white dwarf. Their estimates were right, meaning PTF11KX had at least one nova explosion in its history before going supernova. This shows that although all type 1a supernova may be similar, they can come from very different beginnings. And finally, researchers using the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, ALMA, have measured the presence of simple form of sugar, glycolaldehyde, around a binary young stellar object near the massive star-forming molecular cloud, Rho Ophiuchus. This is not the first detection of glycolaldehyde, but previously it has only been seen in cold, dense cores of star-forming clouds containing many large, hot, young stars. The star which ALMO has detected, glycolaldehyde around, is very similar to our own sun in terms of size. The implications of finding sugars around sun-like stars is strongly related to the story of how life may evolve in the universe. Simple sugars are the building blocks needed to form more complex molecules required for life such as ribose, RNA, and then finally, DNA. One question asked by researchers is what proportion of these complex molecules can form in the environment around young stars, and will they survive to the planet-forming stage? For now, answers to these questions seem quite positive, as sugars are found to be falling into the region around the star, where it is expected, in the future, planets will form. Thanks for that, Stuart. Uh, Now we have two more interviews from the National Astronomy Meeting. And it's a Libby Fest this time around because she did both of them. So first of all, we have Dr. Simon Green, who talks about exploring comets with the Stardust Next mission. Joining us on the Jogcast today is Dr. Simon Green from the Open University. And you've been giving a talk about the Stardust Next mission. Enjoying now. Can you tell us what is the Stardust Next mission and what have you been finding? Yes, the mission is it's actually a follow-on mission from the original Stardust mission, which was designed to collect a sample uh, from Comet Ville 2 and return it to the Earth, which it did in 2006. After the end of that mission, the main mother spacecraft flew past the Earth, and it was then redirected and renamed Stardust Next, uh, targeted towards Comet Temple 1. Now, this comet was the one which uh, another mission called Deep Impact uh, fired a projectile into a few years earlier, and the main objective of the Stardust Next mission was to look at the um, changes in the nature of the comet between the time of the two uh, spacecraft encounters, and also to try and see if it could see the crater that the projectile from the previous mission had done. But my interest is actually in uh, dust detectors on board the spacecraft. These were there to monitor the amount of uh, dust particles hitting the spacecraft, because we needed to know that at the original Ville 2 encounter to allow us to predict how many particles would be present in the aerogel, the collectors that were returned to the Earth for detailed laboratory analysis. So people familiar with uh, BBC Stargazing Live, they had a piece of aerogel on their TV show, it's a very, very light particle, so if people would say that, that's the type of detector that you use to detect dust particles. Well, the aerogel was to collect them, so this is an extremely low-density glass. It's like, imagine it's like a glass sponge um, with a density of about a 1,000 times less than water, so very, very low density, and the idea is it decelerates the dust grains relatively slowly. Spacecraft, as it's flying past the comet at 6 kilometres a second, would be completely destroy the grains when it hit a target, unless you can slow them down gradually. So the idea was to go get a sample return on the cheap by collecting these things as you flew past. Our experiment was actually on the front shield of the spacecraft, detecting the impacts as the particles hit the spacecraft, not the ones that were collected, other particles, um, and they produced vibrations in the front shield, which we picked up with very sensitive microphones. And those allowed us to record the timing of events as we flew through the comet to say when the, com- when the particles were collected, because the, the, the collector doesn't have any time information, it just has the final collection. 
So we had time resolution of the, throughout the encounter. So how close to the comet did you go? Did you fly all the way through the tail of the comet? How Went through the, the coma, that's the head of the comet, so much, much closer than when you observe from the Earth and you see a, a comet, you see a, uh, an extended... Uh, cloud of gas which is called the coma with the tail coming out of that so if as viewed from the earth we went right through the center so within around 200 kilometers of the nucleus that's the few miles wide uh, icy ball at the center Um, so very very close to it so the idea was to get into the region where the dust grains are the density of dust grains is high enough to collect enough to bring back so it's very dangerous because the targeting of the spacecraft was uh, very critical. If you missed a little bit too much, you'd go too close uh, to the nucleus, you could be hit by a several centimetre sized grain that would have destroyed the spacecraft. Too far away, we wouldn't collect anything. And uh, that, there was a very, very critical narrow window which we had to hit, uh, which fortunately we did. Twice. Twice, yes. <laughs> Twice. I take it that's involved a lot of calculations then to try and get that precise area yes, of where yes. to hit. Yes, and um, uh, a lot of sleepless nights for the engineers. And of course, the scientists were fighting the engineers. The engineers want to go a long way away to preserve their spacecraft. The scientists want to go very close to collect lots of particles. And uh, we sort of met somewhere in between. And uh, unfortunately, we did achieve um, the, the main objectives. And the sample analysis is going to be ongoing for well, many decades to come. They're really incredibly interesting results. My interest, as I say, was in, in the direct detection. So what I was talking about today was comparing the results from the Ville 2 encounter in 2004 with the Temple 1 encounter last year. And this was the first time ever that you had a spacecraft with the same instruments that flew past two different comets. And because we had such an unusual results, which frankly, a number of people didn't trust. Um, We really wanted to see whether we could confirm that in a second comet. So what was so unusual about your results? Well, you would expect as you flew past a comet which is producing uh, lots of dust, which comes out from the ices in the nucleus. When the the nucleus comes close to the sun, the ices get heated, uh, vaporise and drag the dust away from the comet with them, and that's what we're we're collecting. Um, You'd expect that to be a, a fairly sort of uniform distribution. So as you flew into the coma, the count rates, the number of impacts you detected would gradually rise to a peak as you got to closest approach and then gradually fall away again. And that wasn't at all what happened. What we found was that we had huge bursts of many, many impacts in shorter than the time resolution of the, the experiment, which was a tenth of a second. And in one case, over a thousand impacts in a tenth of a second. And then for 14 seconds preceding that, not a single one. And that was right at closest approach for Ville 2. Absolutely astonishing. So we had orders of magnitude, many thousand times uh, changes in the spatial density of the particles uh, from different locations. And the only way we could really understand that was if the dust grains leaving the comet were breaking up, so fragmenting. And so you had a little cloud of dust grains that gradually expands, and then by chance you fly through it. So... All the time when you're detecting nothing, you're missing these expanding clouds. And then when you fly through one, you see a huge burst of activity, and then it drops down to zero again for a little while until you hit another one. And we saw the same thing at, uh, at uh, Temple 1. Now, this has is, um, not very much implication for people who are observing comets from the ground because they're seeing on spatial scales of many tens of thousands of kilometres, where all these little fragmenting grains of all kind of clouds have spread out into each other, and it just looks like a uniform comet, which is what we see. But it matters if you're really close to the comet, because what's going to happen in a few years' time is Rosetta, the European Space Agency's uh, comet mission, which is going to go into orbit around a comet, not fly past, and put a lander on the surface, is going to be orbiting in this region. Oh, wow. Very close close. to the... Yeah. And, of course, when when the lander is put down, the comet will be a long way from the sun and not very active, so that's not going to be dangerous then. But the orbiter itself is going to be following the comet in towards the sun. And, of course, gradually it will move away, always trying to be at a safe distance. But, of course, it's going to be the same quandary. The scientists are going to be wanting to keep close (laughs) because that's the exciting bit. The engineers are going to say, be further away. But their calculations will be based on our old idea of a kind of average coma. And if it's not like that, if it's like we've seen in these two comets, from which I believe it will be, um, then they're going to have to be very, very careful because if they fly through one of these expanding dust clouds, they'll get a 1,000 times the number of impacts that they thought they were going to get. 
So it's going to be quite interesting doing that manoeuvring around the comet. So you're going to get very high-density pockets and then nothing <coughs> em- empty. That's correct, yes. And what will cause this expanding dust clouds in these comets? Well, um, what happens with, with the comet itself, of course, it's the, the activity is driven by ices, that are, so mostly water ice, that are being heated by the sun when you go in, they vaporise, and so the, that drags off dust particles. So um, the old idea was you had a whole range of sizes of dust particles which reflected aggregates of original interstellar grains that might be as small as a fraction of a micron that are produced in the atmospheres of stars uh, and then travel in the interstellar medium. They maybe collect organic, um, so carbon uh, molecule, uh, molecular uh, clusters around them in interstellar clouds and eventually they arrive in the pre-solar nebula, so before the solar system's fully formed and they start clumping together and this stuff is what you make comets out of in the outer solar system. Now, that sort of view has comets as being made up of these fluffy aggregates of grains. And so you might have pieces of this coming away and then something heating, maybe it's the organic glue that's sticking together some more rigid particles, making them come apart. So by organic glue, do you mean water? Or do you mean no, 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 not else? water. It, might, it, would be, it would be some kind of carbon um, uh, molecules, um, but... Uh, certainly not things that would um, vaporise at low temperatures, so it's, it won't be water-based things or methane or ammonia, that kind of thing. Um, it would be um, yeah, long-chain organic molecules, the kinds of things that we're starting to see in so the interstellar PAH medium. Yes, yeah. So if, if you have that kind of thing, then you could sort of imagine that glue kind of loosening as the grains leave the comet, because one of the characteristics of dust grains is that they... They're, once they're very small grains, they get superheated because they can't emit infrared radiation very much. So as they leave the comet, they get hotter. And so that may just be enough to trigger this fragmentation process. And we all thought, that, well, this is a kind of nice little picture that we've built up until samples are analysed. And it was the last talk you heard today. Um, was talking about the samples that have been analysed by the uh, geochemists. And we, what we didn't see, that we were expecting to see, was this really primitive, fragile kind of material that we would expect to come from interstellar grains grouped together, that survived the heating in the early solar nebula. What they actually found was grains that appeared to have been formed at very high temperatures, over 1,000 degrees, which we would have expected right at the middle of the pre-solar nebula. And, uh, and somehow that has to get transported out to the region of comets and then buried in comets. Um, and, of course, that then leaves us with, well, if that's what we're, the dust in comets is made of and that we were detecting on our spacecraft, it has to be the same stuff, it was collected from the same mission, how then do we fragment those when they're really rigid, high-temperature grains? So there's a lot of questions still to be answered, and I think it's, it's going to be some time before we really understand it. Maybe it will take the Rosetta instruments where we can hang around for a long time around the comet and really observe it to understand exactly what's happening. How long will the Rosetta instrument go around the comet for? Will it go through an entire orbit, or will it oh, just be as part of it? Many, many orbits. The, um, the idea is that they, they will arrive at the comet... Uh, and have a reconnaissance, so map the surface and decide where they're going to put the lander. The lander will go down, sample the nucleus and make measurements, detailed measurements of the ices and the dust grains, the composition. Whereas the orbiter also has compositional measurements, but the dust detector is very different from the one that we uh, developed for, for Stardust because it's, it's slow speed. Because it's in orbit, the particles will impact at metres per second, not kilometres per second. And so they will use optical techniques to detect them. So as particles fly into a box, you'll see a light shining and the particles will cause a flash and you can measure the size of the particles that way. Um, but I think the answer is more likely to come from the lander, where we can really see what the stuff on the surface of the comet was made of close up. You know, imaging at scales of millimetres is what's really required for this. And there's also a, a microscope uh, in the orbiter um, atomic force microscope which will measure individual dust grains at extremely high magnifications that it's collected in the coma. I think those are the things that will tell us ultimately uh, what's going on because of course whatever you do when you make a measurement in, uh, uh, from a comet from ground-based observations is you're sampling the daughter products of whatever process got them out of the original comet out into the coma where you can see them and of course they're the end product of all these processes that we don't fully understand Stardust was kind of got halfway to that because it allows us to study these things in detail in the lab, but they're still the products of whatever process got the dust grains out. If we, with Rosetta, we'll actually be able to get to the source, which is going to be fantastic. 
Well, that sounds like a very interesting new mission. I can't wait to see the results from it. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Thanks for that, Libby. And now here she is again, talking to Dr. Joseph Mottram about massive star formation. And this interview was recorded outside, so we apologise for the level of background noise. Joining us on the Jogcast today is Dr. Joe Mottram from Leiden Observatory. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast, Joe. Hi, thank you very much. And now you work on the formation of massive stars. Can you tell us a bit about how this process works? Sure. So you start off with a molecular cloud, which is, is full of gas and dust, um, and uh, if this is particularly uh, massive and, and dense, then gradually um, regions will form within that that are, um, that are much denser. Then uh, the material begins to accrete and fall in. Um, you end up with some sort of flattened structure because um, the, any, any uh, angular momentum is, has to be conserved. And so, it so hang on, so angular momentum, let's say... Yes. Like an ice skater spinning around, they have yes, a lot of angular Yes, so exactly like an ice skater uh, spinning. If, if they've got their hands out, then they spin fairly slowly. But as they begin to pull their hands in, they spin very quickly. Just to, uh, and it's just a, a, a conservation of that, that angular momentum. Um, so then, as uh, eventually you begin to form a, a star at the centre of this, this, uh, this disk of material. Um, and the thing with uh, massive stars that is different is... Uh, they, they eventually um, start ionising their surroundings and they're very uh, bright and powerful, very strong radiation from it. And so that can actually begin to destroy the cloud that they've formed from. So by ionise, you mean that the hot star at the centre that she's starting to form uh, gets the, the cool molecules like hydrogen and helium, I guess, around and then they make them charged in some way? Yeah, so... Um, uh, much of the material is, is uh, molecules, so molecular hydrogen and, and uh, carbon monoxide mainly. Um, and the, the radiation is, is energetic enough that it can destroy the, the bonds in the molecules and make them into atoms, and then it can actually start stripping off the electrons, and so you end up with all these charged particles. So how is massive star formation different to general star formation of smaller stars like our sun? Um, well, one of the, the ideas that's been around for a while is, is that um, we, we, we observe um, for stars that are on the main sequence, and I should explain what that means, um, that's stars that are like our sun in the sense that they're just sitting there burning their hydrogen and going about the, the main part of their lifetime, um, that the more massive a star is, the quicker it evolves. And so um, you then have this question of, so does that mean that... Um, the, the massive stars form quicker uh, and you know is there something special about the conditions that you need to form them um, as a form uh, as opposed to just form from the same amount of material just forming a number of smaller uh, less massive stars so how have you gone about answering this question do massive stars form faster sure well um so we uh, back in about 2000 we started um, a systematic survey of of uh, looking for these massive stars in a particularly young phase of their lifetime. So at this, uh, at this point in their lifetime, they, um, they're still probably undergoing, uh, they're gaining mass, um, but they're, they're only really visible in the infrared and uh, sub-millimetre wavelengths, so that's kind of like um, the heat from your radiator rather than the kind of things that we would see with our own eyes. Um, and so we, we've gone ahead and found a, a whole load of these, these sources, um, which means that we can start to classify them uh, and then understand uh, if, if we know how many of them are, there are compared to um, how many uh, of these stars we see when they're, they're burning hydrogen, um, we can actually use a ratio of that and our understanding of how long um, the main sequence lasts for these uh, massive stars to be able to work out the lifetime for the, lo- for the uh, earlier stages of their formation. So these massive stars, they've been in this molecular cloud, they've spun round, they've formed a disk, mm-hmm. and they're starting to big form a core, and that's the stage that you're looking at to time. Yes, it is. And how long... Well, first of all, actually, how massive are we talking in terms of these stars? So these stars are at least eight times the mass of the sun. Um, and in, incidentally, this is also kind of the, the magic number that you, you change from um, a star that is, is going to go through the kind of evolutionary path that our, our sun will go through to a star that can actually um, explode in a supernova. So there's kind of that transition there as well. And how long do they go through this stage of being... Is it this pre-hydrogen uh, burning, this, mm. this stage that you're looking at? How long do they stay on that stage for? Yeah, so um, from the, the results that we've got recently, um, it's of the order of a few hundred thousand years. So this is very, 
very fast compared to um, the amount of time that they'll be burning their hydrogen for, which is more like you know several millions of years. Um, so it's a few, uh, maybe five to ten percent of, of that that amount of time. And what about the smaller mass stars? Is that about a comparable time scale? Is it bigger? Is it shorter? So. Um, one of the, the classic ideas for that has, uh, or, or the numbers that, um, that people have been uh, deriving for a while has been that um, you're talking about a few million years or, or more before it actually reaches the main sequence. Um, but actually we're beginning to think that um, the, the phase where most of the mass is accreted might actually be of a comparable length to, to that we, that we observe in these high-mass stars. So if they're occurring at the same length of time, the small mass stars and the high mass stars, that must mean their infall of material must be a lot quicker if it's the same type of period on the, on the sequence. Can you possibly elaborate about this? Yeah, so um, with, with massive stars, the kind of mass accretion rates that people talk about are of the order of uh, 10 to the minus 4 or 10 to the minus 3 solar masses per year. So that is, you know, in, in the case, in, in the stretch of... Uh, a thousand to ten thousand years they'll gain the mass of the sun um, whereas the kind of uh, accretion rates that people talk about for low mass stars are more more like um, a factor of a hundred lower than that um, so actually uh, if if they're they're taking about the same amount of time to form these low and high mass stars in the same region but the accretion rates are different this probably tells us something about the the preferential location of of where the massive stars form in a cloud as opposed to where the low mass stars form and do the massive stars form in big clumps was it one massive star and a few smaller stars is it isolated massive stars or do we not know yet um for the most part we think that massive stars form in in uh multiples uh, congregations so um to give you an example uh the uh most of the O stars that we know about in the Orion... So um, O stars are the hottest stars, the biggest stars we've got. Yes, so, so these are the bright blue stars. These are, um, when you look at the constellation of Orion, um, several of those, those bright blue stars are O stars, and actually in the belt there's the Orion molecular cloud, which is the nearest high-mass star formation region to us. Uh, and within that there's, there's quite a lot of, of these O stars. And actually the, when we've gone back and looked with higher resolution we found that most of them are in binaries. Um, so we know that most masses... So by binary, sorry, I just want to jump in there, you mean yep. double stars? Yes, so we mean two stars that are all orbiting each other um, as opposed to just two stars that are separate and, and sitting there um, near, near each other. And in low-mass stars, you, get, you expect to form into little clumps, but in high-mass stars, does that not just use all the material nearby? Why, how can they form together? Well, that's, that's one of the... the the tricky things actually um so at the moment uh there's you almost have the reverse problem is is when you're trying to form a massive star why does it not break up into lots of little stars um um, and one of the things that we think is that um if you actually warm up the gas a little bit as it's as it's uh, collecting together this actually stops it breaking up into into multiple um stars uh, just by supporting the gravitational collapse a little bit, just enough to, to stop that, that breaking up into to little smaller stars. OK, thank you very much. Thanks for that again, Libby. And now we come to that part of the show where we fit in all of the things we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. So again, it's been a very sad week in terms of astronomy and the world in general with the death of Neil Armstrong. However, there is a very nice little tribute that we can see and this is a graph that George Bank made using a 50-foot telescope to follow the signal from the Eagle lander as it descended and landed on the moon. And this graph is very cool because it measured the Doppler shift and the relative velocity between the telescope and the lander during this descent and landing stage. And what you can see is you can see, first off, a very, very smooth descent where the computer is in control of the lander. And then towards the end you can see where Neil Armstrong takes control because it's no longer quite as smooth. There's a few bumps in it, but it still follows quite a nice curve, which shows what a fantastic pilot he was where he's going over the moon's surface. And then you can see a nice straight line where it's landed on the moon. And I just think this is very, very cool because it's on graph paper and you can see where the signal's just been printed at. Boom drawn out onto it and I think it's fantastic so it's all just from the frequency of the signal as it comes in yeah it's all Doppler shift effect wow it's just amazing that Neil Armstrong 
manually piloted it down onto the moon. It's just a name that I think everybody knows. Everyone knows who Neil Armstrong is. It's, it's, it's strange to think of that era passing, really. It's also quite a sad day, the fact that we don't seem to have these manned missions anymore. And I'm just kind of wondering, are we becoming too risk-averse? Or is it maybe we're too money-averse to send manned space flights now? Yeah, it's never happened in our lifetime, has it? Anyone actually going on the moon? No, and with the shuttle programme, it seems like everything's going backwards. I guess it was a really dangerous thing, what what they were doing. Like when Neil Armstrong had to take control of the Eagle, it was because they were going to land on a very rocky area. And he just had to suddenly react to that. And when you think about the, the risk involved, I guess, you can see why people are a bit more reluctant. I think I would take any risk to have a chance to go into space. Yeah, I think I would as well. So, well, we'll go if there's another, man, <laughs> if there's another manned mission. <laughs> I'd like to come back, but... <laughs> I'm not one for all these manned space flights where you get deposited on another planet and then you're left there till the end of your days. No. Nice to come back. I think I'd like to have a return in order, but it's just crazy that the moon is there and we can't go to it anymore, yet we could in the 60s. Well, it's just a legendary event. It's got to go down in all-time history, the first human mission to another world. And what Neil Armstrong's family actually said would be a nice tribute to him is they said, next time you look up at the moon, have a smile and a wink for Neil Armstrong. So I did that. I guess I'll be doing that tonight then. (laughs) That's a very nice thought. And our other odd end is a slightly unusual one, which features the Goddard Space Flight Centre, where NASA develops space flight technology. But what you might not expect is that it's got nothing to do with space. It's actually that they found, some paleontologists found dinosaur footprints in the grounds of the Goddard Space Flight Centre. And what type of dinosaurs are these? Are these really cool (laughs) Tyrannosaurus rexes? Or are they something else? Well, they are kind of cool. I hadn't heard of them before. I think I'm pronouncing this right. It's a nodosaurus, or a nodosaur, or a nodosaur. (laughs) (laughs) I like a nodosaurus. It has a nice image in my brain of a dinosaur sort of plodding along, nodding happily. And according to Ray Stanford, one of the people who discovered it, they were four-footed tanks heavily armoured, herbivorous dinosaurs. And the amazing thing is they actually found two sets of footprints, a big one and then a little one inside the big one. So they think it was a mother and baby, possibly, just just walking along 110 million years ago in the place that then became the grounds of the Goddard Space Flight Centre. That's really awesome. (laughs) It's just so weird to link something so old dinosaurs with something so new like space but i'm just glad that no one messed this footprint up apparently it was preserved in sand by iron oxide or hematite wonder if they gone looking for more well probably yeah now they found that one partly i just thought jen would really like this one dinosaurs in space together at last <laughs> you thought it was impossible <laughs> and now for a man who always has one eye on the moon here's ian morrison with the northern hemisphere night sky The night sky, September 2012. Well, two things go on from sort of August through to October or so. Essentially, the stars move eastwards, and so it would be seen a little earlier each night. But just at the same time, the sunset is earlier as well. So the stars that you tend to see after dark stay much the same. So one repeats oneself a bit. So after dark, during September, Hercules very nice constellation, will be setting over in the west. The four brightest stars make up what's called the keystone, and about two-thirds of the way up the right-hand side of the keystone, you see a nice globular cluster called M13. Then, really dominating the southern sky, we have the three bright stars, Vega, Deneb, and Altair, forming what is called the Summer Triangle. Deneb will be almost overhead, and Vega a little bit towards the west. If you take some binoculars and work your way up from Altair at the bottom, about a third of the way towards Vega, you actually cross a fairly dark part of the Milky Way. It's called the Cygnus Rift. And in there, there's a rather nice little asterism called Brocky's Cluster. Up to the left of that is the faintest star of the four stars that make up the part of Cygnus called the Northern Cross, very obviously a cross, is called Albireo. 
And it's a lovely star system to look at with a small telescope because there's a beautiful double star. And one of them looks rather golden in colour and the other one perhaps turquoise. There's a lovely colour contrast. So if you have a small telescope, do please have a look at Albireo. Down to the left of Cygnus is a tiny constellation, a very pretty one though, called Delphinus the Dolphin. That's worth looking for. And then over towards the east, you have quite a large constellation, Pegasus. And then up to the left of that, we have Andromeda. And of course, Andromeda contains the nearest large galaxy to us. We call it the Andromeda Galaxy because it lies beyond the stars that make up the constellation Andromeda. The way to find it is actually quite simple. It's called star hopping. You start from the top left-hand star of the square of Pegasus, Alpha Andromedae. It's called Alpha Rats. You then go one bright star to the left, sort of fork a bit to the right, to the second bright star. At that point, you turn sharp right, move to one bright star, and then the same distance again, and you should see the fuzzy glow of Andromeda with a pair of binoculars. On a really dark, clear night, you could actually see it with your unaided eye. Above Andromeda is the rather sweet constellation of Cassiopeia, a sort of an open W. And then rising up in the east is Perseus. If you work your way through the Milky Way from Cassiopeia towards Perseus, you'll come to a rather lovely little region which contains what's called the Perseus Double Cluster, two rather lovely close open clusters of stars. So in fact, it's a jolly good month to observe the heavens. Well, what about the planets? Well, let's start with Jupiter. In fact, it's now rising around midnight at the beginning of September and by almost 10 o'clock by month's end. But in fact, you'll see it best if you can get up before dawn, when it'll be about 60 degrees above the horizon in the constellation of Taurus the Bull. It's shining with magnitude about minus 2.3, so it's pretty bright. It starts September just six and a half degrees to the upper left of the star Aldebaran, the eye of the bull. It's gradually moving towards the bull's horns and the magnitude increases a touch to minus 2.5. Of course, at the same time, as it's getting nearer, the angular size is increasing from 39 to 43 arc seconds, which means that even a small telescope will show plenty of detail with the bright zones and darker bands. And you should see anything up to four of the Galilean moons. Well, Saturn, we've been discussing that over the year, is now close to the end of its apparition, but it sort of hangs on a bit because although it's getting further round to the east, as I said, sunset is getting earlier, so you can still see it low in the west after sunset, shining at magnitude plus 0.8. And in fact, I was out observing with the Macclesfield Astronomy Society and we saw both Saturn and, as we shall see, Mars, along with a thin, rather nice crescent moon. The disk is 16 arc seconds across, and the rings are currently 14 degrees from the line of sight, so they span some 36 arc seconds. When Saturn comes back again, seen in the morning, in fact those rings will have opened out quite a bit. It should look really good. Mercury, well, it's really too close to the Sun to see this month. It's not really worth trying. And then Mars, well, it's not far from Saturn. It's moving eastwards through Virgo and Libra is now sadly past its best. Its angular size is only 5.2, dropping to 4.8 arc seconds, so you're not going to see any detail. But you will see this rather nice salmon pink little disc, well worth having a look for. And in fact, on the 1st of September, its elevation is only 8 degrees as darkness falls, and that reduces as the month progresses. Well, finally, Venus. Well, this is a morning object. It rises now about three hours before the sun, and with a magnitude of minus 4.2, really dominates the pre-dawn sky. It's moving rapidly eastwards. It starts the month in Gemini, crosses into Cancer on the 4th, and into Leo on the 23rd, ending the month just 3.5 degrees up and to the right of Regulus, Alpha Leonis. Now, the angular size is dropping from 20 to 16 arc seconds, but at the same time, the percentage illumination increases from 58 to 70%. And as a result, the brightness hardly changes from about minus 4.3 to minus 4.1 magnitudes. Well, what about some highlights? Well, there aren't that many this month. On September the 8th, you can actually see Jupiter close to a third quarter moon. 
and that, as I said, is lying in Taurus. On the 19th, if it's clear, you have a very good low western horizon. You should be able to see Mars, magnitude plus 1.2, to the left of a very thin crescent moon, with Saturn, magnitude plus 0.8, appearing over to their right. If you have a thin crescent moon, there's always a chance, if there's a fair bit of cloud over the Earth, to be able to spot what is called the Earth shine. It's the unilluminated part of the moon from the sun, but in fact faintly illuminated by light reflected from the Earth. Now, once a year, of course, the outer planets come due south around midnight. That's when they're closest to us and perhaps best to look for. And this month, Uranus is closest to the Earth on the 29th. Now, obviously, it's not that bright, about magnitude 5.7, so it's good to look for it when there isn't much of a moon, and that's around the 12th to the 19th. However, there's a very good reason to observe it around the 21st of the month. The reason is it comes very close to a star called 44 Piscium, which has an almost identical magnitude. So they'll look virtually like an equal double star, with, I think, quite a nice colour contrast because Uranus looks a rather pale turquoise blue colour. The closest they come is actually at midday on the 23rd, so we can't actually see that unless you happen to pop down to Australia, and they're as close as 0.7 arc minutes, so even binoculars will split them. That's actually called an appulse, A-double-P-U-L-S-E, that's the closest approach, and I must say I've never heard that word uh, before, but that's what it's called. So I think around the 21st, a couple of days before and after, Uranus should look rather interesting, appearing effectively as a double star. Now, it's not that easy to find, but on the night sky page, just put into Google on the Jodrell Bank website, I've actually given you two star charts, a large area one to show roughly where it is, and a more detailed one to help you find it. And as I mentioned earlier, on September the 30th, Venus is very close to Regulus in Leo, and will get even closer, in fact, the first few days of October. On, on the Night Sky page, each month I try and give you something interesting to look at on the Moon's surface, and this month I've included what's called the Alpine Valley, which is a rather nice valley that cuts across the Apennine mountain chain that's towards the edge of Mare Imbrium. It's about seven miles wide and 79 miles long, so it's actually quite a good valley. There is, in fact, a very thin rill that runs along the centre, but you need a jolly good night of clear seeing to be able to spot that. The best nights to look for it are on September the 6th and 7th and the 23rd and 24th. And that's when the Terminator lies relatively close and that makes all the shadows sharp and you see detail much better. And you might wonder how I get those dates. Well, there's a nice free program called Virtual Moon Atlas, which you can download. And that will tell you what you can see on the moon any time of any day. And so simply I look at that and go through the days of the month to see when the Terminator is close to the object I'd like to point out to you. So, quite a bit to do, and one thing this month, of course, is you haven't got to wait up quite so late before it gets dark. Good hunting. Thanks for that, Ian. And now here's John Field with what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere night sky. Kia ora, and welcome to the September job cast coming from Carter Observatory, Wellington, New Zealand. September marks the time of the southern spring equinox, which will be on the 23rd. This is the time when our daylight and nighttime hours are roughly the same. In our evening sky, the zodiac constellations of Scorpius and Sagittarius are in the west after sunset. The Scorpion will be head down and tail up in our sky. Antares is the brightest star in the Scorpion, and it marks its heart. Antares and the tail look like a back-to-front question mark. Antares is a red giant star about 600 light years away and 10,000 times brighter visually than the Sun. The total amount of energy radiated from Antares is about 60,000 times that of our Sun. The star has expanded its diameter and if in our solar system, it would reach past the orbit of Mars. The star is mostly an extremely thin gas spread out over a very hot, dense core. Red giants are in the last stages of their evolution as a star. The hot, dense core of the star is using the last of its thermonuclear energy to form heavier elements. For massive stars like Antares, a core of iron is finally formed. This leads to a collapse of the core and the formation of either a neutron star or a black hole. 
This explosion called a supernova produces a range of elements heavier than iron. These elements are then swept up in the formation of new stars and planets. In Māori's star world, the line of stars from Antares to the sting of the scorpion is called Timata'a Māori, the hook Māori. The Milky Way is broad and bright in this region. Here we are looking towards the centre of our galaxy. The actual centre is about 27,000 light years away. It's hidden from our view by intervening dust clouds. The nearer clouds make the dark patches along the Milky Way. Some of the central bulge of the Milky Way is glimpsed in the gaps between the clouds, making brighter areas of the Milky Way in this region. The dust clouds are made of hydrogen and helium left over from the Big Bang, along with carbon and silicon and other elements and molecules ejected from previous populations of stars. Collectively, this is called the interstellar medium. At a right angle beam to the scorpion's tail, we can see a comet-like object. This is NGC 6231. In reality, it is a star cluster about 6,000 light years away. In a small telescope, it resembles the Pleiades of a group of seven bright stars. To the right of the Scorpion's thing is an upper bright cluster called M7, the most subtly of Messier's catalogued objects. Easily seen with the unaided eye, it is lovely when viewed through binoculars or a wide-field telescope. M7 is about 220 million years old. Nearby and fainter is M6, the butterfly cluster. This is due to its vague resemblance to a butterfly with outstretched wings and antenna. There are a number of other clusters in this region that are well worth looking for with binoculars or small telescopes. You can easily photograph this region with a digital camera, wide-field lens, along with a manual cable release or a countdown timer mounted on a tripod. Find a dark location and use exposures of 30 seconds or greater and an ISO rating of 800. These will reveal beautiful images of the Milky Way along with many star clusters and nebulae in this region. You can experiment with different focal length ratios and other settings to see what works best. Following Scorpius is Sagittarius the Archer. Rather than a kneeling arch, it can be seen forming the shape of a teapot. The centre of the galaxy is below the teapot's spout. Using infrared telescopes, we can peer through the dust between us and the centre of the galaxy and reveal the stars orbiting at high speed around a small region. By studying these orbits, it has been deduced that a black hole falling times the mass of the Sun resides here. Infrared and X-ray telescopes have seen flares from this region. This is thought to be from material falling into the black hole, and observations reveal that the black hole is small in size in the Earth's orbit. Below the teapot is the glowing gas cloud M8, commonly called the Lagoon Nebula, with the dark lanes of dust that can be seen in it. This gas is glowing in ultraviolet light from very hot stars. These stars have formed within the cloud in the past two million years. Not far from M8 is M20. This cluster and associated nebula is called the Trifid due to its appearance as a bright nebula with three dark lanes dissecting it. Both objects look spectacular in photographs and will appear rather disappointing in small telescopes as an eye cannot collect enough light to see the colours. Unfortunately, unless you have a really large telescope, all nebula appear as grey clouds. There are a number of other young open clusters of stars and nebula in this area. There are also many globular clusters in this region and these are spherical clusters of ancient stars. In binoculars and small telescopes, globular clusters appear as a round, fuzzy spot. The number of globular clusters discovered in this area was evidence that the centre of the galaxy was in this direction and was a very long way from us. Globular clusters have also been discovered orbiting other galaxies, and these can be used to learn about the earliest periods in the formation of galaxies. Near to the teapot is a lovely, easily seen semicircle of stars called Corona Australis, the southern crown. Travelling down the Milky Way towards the northern horizon, we find Cygnus, the swan, appearing as a large cross-like shape. The bright star Deneb marks the tail. Above Deneb and to the right of the Milky Way is Altair, the brightest star in Aquila the Eagle. It is flanked by two fainter stars forming a line that marks the fan of the eagle's tail. To the left of Deneb is the fifth brightest star in the night sky, Vega. Vega, Deneb and Altair form the winter triangle for us here in the southern hemisphere. By midnight, Scorpius and Sagittarius will be sitting as Orion the Hunter and Canis Major the Large Dog rise in the east. In the evening sky, Saturn and Mars can be seen in the west not too long after sunset. They have separated after the conjunction in mid-August. Saturn is still near Spica, but Mars has moved away northwards, away from Virgo and into the constellation of Libra of the Scales. In early August, the 900k Curiosity rover landed on a crater called Gale. This rover has commenced its exploration and should spend at least one Martian year exploring this region. Jupiter will be rising in the early morning, and observers will see it as a very bright star near to the Pleiades Mataniki in the constellation of Taurus. Mercury and Venus will be poorly placed for viewing during September. In New Zealand, we have two full moons in September, the first being on the 1st and the second on the 30th. 
sometimes called a blue moon. This has nothing to do with the moon's colour changing, but due to apparent rarity of these events. We wish all our listeners clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, John. And now on to the feedback. We've had two fabulous postcards this time. The first one is from Rarotonga, which is one of the Cook Islands in the South Pacific. And they're incredibly remote. And so all I can say is, Rod from Glasgow, you're very lucky on your travels there. And he sent us this postcard and said he found the Southern Hemisphere night sky particularly useful for finding his way around the stars there. Although on the postcard, he's actually got a picture of some reef fish because he couldn't get a night sky picture. But I bet that the sky in the Cook Islands is unbelievable. And the second postcard is from Matthew, who is hiking amongst the volcanoes, geysers and glaciers of Iceland and sent us a postcard of a geyser. <laughs> we are really jealous. Oh, I love to see the northern lights in Iceland. I don't know if you can see it right now, but... So much daylight. Yeah. The nights are getting slightly longer here in the northern hemisphere, so you never know. People are just going on really amazing holidays. And Matthew, just to rub it in as well, says, I'm sure you'll have a great September episode waiting for me when I get back home to Seattle. So he also lives in a really cool place, as well as going on holiday to them. In the email, we've had a very intriguing proposal from Dr. Allen in California for detecting cosmic neutrino background. This is like the cosmic microwave background, but relic neutrino particles emitted after the Big Bang. And they should be all over the place. But the problem is that these neutrinos are very, very low energy and it'll be very difficult to detect because of the low energies. The way neutrinos are detected at the moment, you require very, very massive telescope detectors like Ice Cube or a water detector in the Mediterranean Sea with very deep probes. So Alan proposes filling an asteroid with water as your detector, then accelerating it to very high speeds. So in other words, the neutrinos won't move fast, but the detector will ram into them all. He does, however, acknowledge that there are a few technical problems with this. <laughs> I think accelerating an asteroid to near the speed of light would be a little bit difficult. But it's a nice idea, and if we could ever detect these earlier signatures from the Big Bang, it'd be pretty awesome. I'm glad people are thinking creatively, based on listening to the Jarcast. On the forum, firstly, thank you to everyone who's been discussing Neil Armstrong in very warm terms. Also, listener Mark said that he listened to last episode's Ask an Astronomer on top of a big Scottish hill, which apparently made it more amazing. And, of course, if you did listen to that one, then you'll know that time would have been running faster, slightly faster for you up there on the mountain. Another listener, Mark C., congratulated Jen on becoming a doctor. So all I can say from that is that all the best people are obviously called Mark. Of course, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> On Twitter, we'd like to say thank you for all the tweets and the follow Fridays. And GJ says we should get Alan Partridge to say John on. And for those of you who don't know, he's a comedy character in the UK. So we'll better watch out for Dave Alt. He may come back and do an impression. <laughs> I can't wait to listen to that one if he does. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And of course you can always send us posts and the address is on the website. So that brings us to the end of the show and it just remains to say thank you very much to Simon Green and Joseph Mottram for the interviews. The editors were Mark Perver, Claire Brotherton, Liz Guzman and Christina Smith. And the producer was Mark Perver. So until next time, Jodom! Bye! Bye!